Welcome to Take a Seat, where we sit down with experts on a wide range of topics related to the science of human flourishing. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Holton. I'm a coach, consultant, and speaker in the field of optimal human functioning. Whether you're someone trying to build your best self or a better community, we've got something for you. So take a seat. Hello, friends. Welcome back in to Take a Seat. I've got a really unique episode for you this week, uh, one that really speaks to the importance and really, I think, profoundness of human resilience. We sat down with Mike Voren and Ali Lambert Voren, uh, two incredibly resilient individuals who have really powerful stories, both on their own and as a married couple. We started by digging into Allie's story and specifically into the details of her challenges with alopecia and over a three-year battle with ulcerative colitis, struggles she went through both as a teenager with her family and then later as an adult with Mike by her side. We then learned about Mike's history of overcoming adversity, including the loss of his mother to brain cancer, looking after a brother with a lot of challenges and special needs, and the recent realization that his father likely has Asperger's. Plus how all of that has fueled his work as a principal at a school in Yonkers for kids with special learning needs, along with his work for the Special Olympics. The two weave in and out of some of the stories behind these challenging events in their lives, the lessons they've learned from these events, and they do so with a sense that they can really handle anything that comes their way because in the end, they really seem to always have one another to lean on. It was a really incredible conversation, and like many we've seen this season, one that I think really helps put a lot of things into perspective. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Mike and Ali Voren. How you doing? Hi, Mike. Nice to meet you. Hey, what's up, Nick? How are you, man? Good, thanks. Good to be here with you both. Thanks. Long time, long time coming. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Thanks for making it work. So I'm glad so if you ready. look in the top of this Zoom, it's like a one of these things doesn't belong picture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this right. will be a bald cast. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty go. much. Or, yep, love it. Great point. So um, I'm a nervous wreck. Mike is like, couldn't be more relaxed. <laughs> nothing to be nervous about. Nothing to be nervous about. Point being is multiple people this morning have asked um, who we're interviewing for this episode now that it got released. And when I mentioned it, the people rave about you and your sisters, right? They mentioned the award. So like, I think people are excited to hear from you. Oh, good. You should, oh. should feel excited. Maybe nerves come with that. But either way, I think this will be really good. Okay, cool. So, uh, you know, basically the idea is I thought we might just sort of start um, digging into each of your kind of individual stories respectively. And obviously those, those stories are going to merge at some point and, and we'll go down that road. Um, but just kind of see what, what that elicits. And, you know, I have a general sense that a lot of what we'll talk about today will be challenges based and overcoming some of those challenges and strategies for doing so and, and those sorts of things, both individually and collectively. So let's start on the individual side. And, and Allie, uh, let's start with you. Why don't you give us some of your background and your story, whatever that means to you. Okay. Um, so as it relates to Shipley, I went to Shipley since third grade. Um, so third through 12th. And um, I have two younger sisters who both also went there. So we're a big Shipley family. 
And along the way, um, when I was 16, I know, well, I, let me just say, I was totally healthy my whole life. Like I barely even got a cold. Um, I always used to think about like, I'd never even miss school cause I never was sick. And then when I was 16 years old, uh, my mom noticed a bald patch on the top of my head and we didn't know what it was. And we like had, I mean, I'd never heard of anyone losing their hair for any reason. And um, it turned out that I had something called alopecia and little by little, my hair started falling out first on my head and then on the rest of my body, all over my body. And uh, I was basically with, I think about nine months it took and I was fully bald by the time that was, by nine months, I was fully bald. So this was in my junior year at Shipley. And you know, whenever I tell people what age I was when this happened, their first response is always like, oh my God, that must've been so awful. What a terrible age to have that happen. And in high school, and it was really somehow just not that terrible. Like it just wasn't, I think between my parents who were very positive, um, always kind of like, eh, what can you do? Like there's worse things. Let's just kind of push on and just get through this. And then the support of Shipley, truthfully, I mean, like I tell everybody that my two influences were my parents and Shipley um, about this, just because there was just so much support. Um, you know, and through that whole year, Shipley, I don't know what the uniform code is now, but you know, you couldn't wear a hat, you couldn't wear really a bandana, anything on your head. And at that point, when I started losing my hair, I needed to, so, you know, to cover up. So I had to get permission to do that. And then when everybody saw me wearing a hat, it was kind of like, what's going on with Allie? So the whole school knew as this was happening. And um, I just felt total support. And when I say that, I mean, you know, both being allowed to do things like that, which, which is gracious and awesome. Um, but also... At one point, it was the end of my junior year, and Dr. Pilch, who was the headmaster at the time, called me into his office, and he said, you know, I just wanted to see what you thought about this, but um, we're about to have elections for all school president, and, you know, sometimes the staff and I discuss who might be good people, and we feel like with everything that you've gone through this year, you might be a good, uh, you know, just a good um, representation of, of how to handle something when it's thrown at you that might be a challenge and we feel like because it's such a visual um you know position to be in and the school sees you do you know weekly assemblies and all of that stuff they they said maybe you should think about running long story short i ran for president we during our speeches i made it funny about losing my hair and following in the footsteps of you know mr clean and um and so I became all school president. And then my whole senior year, what was so amazing about um, them giving me that opportunity is that each week I stood in front of Shipley, the high school, you know, the upper school, and then at some points, the whole school, at some points, alumni or parents. And I kind of told my story or I talked about, you know, or I, it wasn't about me and it was just about Shipley. I was just a leader at that point. But the whole thing was just this, um, constant message to me that it's okay, no matter you know what happens to you, this, this one was only cosmetic, but no matter what happens to you, you know, don't let that get in your way. Don't let that stop you. You could still, you could still lead. You could still be a leader. You could still um, stand in front of the school and you know, represent Shipley and, and help you know, the rest of the kids get through their things. Um, so I took that with me after I graduated and I think it was just this message that stuck with me. Like, no matter what happens to you, 
um, you know, you can, you can do with it what you want. You can crumble or you can just kind of persevere and push on. And so that whole thing is like who I am, um, which came again, both from my parents pushing me to just kind of, you know, move on, but, but really from Shipley, which I think is just such a gift. Um, so later in my life, um, 10 years later, I wound up getting diagnosed with um, ulcerative colitis, which is um, like inflammation in your colon and your large intestine. It wound up being pretty bad. Um, I went through, what was it, almost five years? Well, that was about, about four years. Three and a half years. Three and a half years. It felt like a, a century. But um, of being very, very sick, where just nothing would really get the inflammation to cease. Um, tried every medication, tried some trial medications, changed my diet, you know, everything. In the end, we just decided that um, a way to kind of get through that is to have your entire colon, your large intestine, removed. The only cure, really, yeah. is to, to, re to remove the diseased organ, you know. So um, all of the other pharmaceutical interventions are, are really just sort of treatments as opposed to a cure. And none of the treatments were, were working. So, you know, what was interesting about having this, um, you know, this diagnosis and this, this health issue is that the first time I went through this, it was totally cosmetic. It was totally on the outside. Everybody could see it, you know, whether it was at Shipley or driving in my car or when I got to college or when I moved to New York, like I was bald. I chose not to wear a wig just because to me it was more me. And it was such a visual thing, but it didn't hurt in any way. You know, it didn't like hurt my body. And then with colitis, it was the complete opposite. Nobody knew that I was really suffering, but it was so physical. And I mean, it was, you know, I, I almost died a couple times. I had two blood transfusions. I um, got something called PCP pneumonia, which, which basically only happens to people that are totally immunocompromised, which I was at the time from different medications. Uh, we spent our first, Mike and I spent our first, wedding anniversary in the hospital. Um, so, you know, it was just really tough. And I think the fact that then I had to go through something so painful and then we got through it by having this surgery and, um, you know, just feeling better. It took about a year to heal after that. And then, um, you know, I was okay. Like I was better. We went on to have two children after that. So the lesson that I feel like both Mike and I got from that was, you know, personally for me, wow, I've been through this cosmetic thing that was so visible to other people. And then, wow, I've been through something that hurt so badly and affected our lives so much. Um, if I can get through both of those things, I mean, I can get through anything, really. Like, I really feel that way. And so I've had other autoimmune diseases that have popped up since then. I have four right now, nothing so crazy, but um, nothing so major. But, you know, it is what it is. This is life. We only get to live once. So I can either live it, you know, in pain or in emotional pain, or I can just kind of move on and go along with life and, and try to deal with it. Sadly, you know, with my couple of things that I have now, Mike has to hear about it all the time because he is my other half. So when my skin is hurting or whatever mike's mike's I don't the know one what you're talking about i don't think i hear <laughs> any of that <laughs> yeah it's selective selective hearing loss yeah so that's that's basically um you know i think i think my story the only other thing i would say to to present is you know with covid that we're in right now with this pandemic 
I know obviously there was so much struggle for so many people on earth for some reason, kind of slowing down life and slowing down the rat race and just kind of like catching my breath with my family and being more with my family, not having to run the kids everywhere. I have found it to be just such a great reprieve. And I felt that from the beginning and it made me notice, wow, like, you know, I struggle with some anxiety and I think a lot of my anxiety is from the rat race, from not having myself all together and having to get this place and, and bring that thing. I, I, I'm forgetful. So it just kind of made me realize, wow, if I slow down, um, if life was a little slower, I would probably be a little bit, you know, I'd be a little bit more calm. So in a way, for a while, I was very afraid to go back to the reality of life. I think I'm still a little afraid of that because if life moves fast again, you know, I don't know, am I going to be ready for it? Then at the same time, I'm trying to say to myself, let me take what I've learned from this period and, you know, use it to my advantage and somehow, you know, do what I need to do to try to stay calm and not anxious. 11 days ago, I started this yoga challenge. I haven't moved my body in years. And it's like a 20 minute yoga thing every day for 30 days. And I'm on day, today was day 11. And I just like, it's a little bit of me time that I haven't really had in a year and much longer than that. But I'm trying to do things that will keep me, you know, that I can bring into um, post COVID life just to feel, you know, more centered and, and better. Our head of school uses language a lot. Previous school I was at used similar language. Like what, what are you taking with you? What are you leaving behind? And it seems that a lot of people have, you know, been forced to really in some ways reflect on that throughout this past year. And certainly not that it's behind us, but with, you know, vaccine getting rolled out more and more and more and people starting to think about things slightly differently. I think a lot of folks are asking that very question, like, okay, maybe I'm seeing a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. What do I want to make sure I don't want to, I don't forget yeah. about this time period, right? And, and almost to take that part of it, like, this has been a gift in a way. You know, COVID obviously is not a gift as a whole, but if you can take something from the experience, let that, you know, let that be the positive that you take. There's, I've got a bunch of questions and a bunch of things I'd, I'd love to tap into. Before we do that, I, I want to pop over to you, Mike, and, and ask if you'd do the same, kind of give us your story and your background and what it is that you do now. Sure. Uh, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, um, kind of Lafayette Hill, Conshohocken area. I went to Plymouth White Marsh High School, hence the, you know, quote unquote, wrong side of the tracks to an extent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, in my memory, in, in the perception of my, my childhood, I, I, I had a very, uh, you know, uneventful type of, of, of childhood and upbringing. Um, but I, I think that, um, you know, when you look at it from an intellectual perspective um, and just look at the facts of it, there certainly was a lot of things that maybe I'm blocking out, maybe my perception has sort of, um, you know, protected me to an extent, but I, I grew up with, with two parents that uh, loved us very much. And uh, I have a younger brother who at three years old well, was diagnosed with epilepsy. And, you know, that in and of itself isn't necessarily any kind of death sentence or especially in today's world, any kind of major, 
you know, major diagnosis, still a lot of complications, but back in 1983, it certainly was not as understood. And it also turns out my brother has um, intellectual disability, bipolar disorder, uh, diabetes, and, you know, some other physical uh, disabilities. When we were growing up in the, you know, and in the 80s, um, these types of diagnoses in, in kids were not necessarily as prevalent or as understood. Special education was far, far from where it is today. And so what we experienced as a family, you know, is very, very different from how, how I think I remember it. My brother had a lot of behavioral challenges as a kid. You know, there, there was extreme tantruming and, you know, uh, grandma seizures where I was brought to a neighbor's house in the middle of the night repeatedly, you know, for, for a long period of time. I, I remember my mom telling me I grew up in the crib with, with Dan Kozloff because, um, you know, I was often brought over there as a, as a you know, a, a toddler because my brother was was being brought to the hospital in the middle of the night, and it obviously required a lot of attention, a lot of attention by my parents that maybe I wasn't aware of um, as as a child. Um, I grew up playing ice hockey, and um, it was a pretty consuming type of endeavor. You know, it's it's a lot of weekends and it's a lot of travel and it's a lot of practice and it's a lot of equipment and. You know, I think it it sort of sheltered me maybe to an extent from everything else going on because I was busy with ice hockey. I was very fortunate that I grew up in this sort of little, little suburban townhouse neighborhood. And my five, four best friends um, also lived there. And we had a little crew and we could ride our bikes to each other's houses. And, you know, between that and ice hockey, I, I had a really strong support system and and social network that um, I really do think sort of um, isolated me and, and protected me to an extent from a lot of the challenges my parents had to deal with regarding my brother. You know, there, there's a lot of other family dynamics involved, um, as all families have lots of odd dynamics, some of which you understand as you're growing up, some of which you don't understand until you can reflect as an adult. But um, my mom was an only child, uh, had two sisters who died very young before she was grown. They were older than her. So there was something there within my grandparents and my mom that I wasn't really maybe in tune with. And my dad, I think, as an adult, I now realize, and I'll touch based on this at another point, but I, would, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that my dad um, has Asperger's. And so those, and his sister has, has bipolar. <laughs> and so there wasn't a, a ton of family support available for my parents. And, um, you know, we had our, our, our community, our little community who supported me, you know. So, you know, as we got through those early challenges, my family kind of became immersed in Special Olympics. We were, uh, my mom coached as long as I can remember. I started coaching when I was 12 or 13. Probably if I could assume in preparation for my bar mitzvah, it was like, 
you know, you got to do your little service stuff yep. and yep. all that kind of stuff. Yep. So start coaching Special Olympics, you know. Yep. So, <laughs> but I did, you know, and I loved it. I did swimming and basketball and track and field. And, you know, it was with my brother and my family. And, and, and looking back, it was interesting because it was really just my brother, my mom and I. My dad wasn't really involved. It sounds like you have a, a clear sense as to why at this point. I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, be, it's become more and more clear by the day. Uh, fortunately, very very recently, yeah, very recently last year or two. So, you know, growing up, I, I didn't really, I don't think I was aware or acknowledged or really, uh, allowed some of these family dynamics and challenges to impact me. I I mean, I really just kind of remember sneaking out of my house at 12 at night to go to parties in high school, you know, with my (laughs) friends and, you know, hockey tournaments and, you know, concerts. And it wasn't until a little later in life that I really went through some more real significant challenges from my perspective. Went on to college, uh, went to University of Delaware, had great friends there, you know, wonderful time. Went on and got another degree at Westchester University down there in, in Pennsylvania to be a teacher and uh, went on to, to teach history. And then I, I wound up moving to Massachusetts, to the Boston area. And I realized that I really missed that Special Olympics part of my life. And so when I was up there, I, I was coaching hockey for this powerhouse Catholic school team. And, and, you know, up there, high school hockey, especially the Catholic school hockey is, is really almost more important than the Bruins. <laughs> and um, it was it was a, a real interesting thing for this sort of Jew from Philly to be coaching <laughs> at this Catholic school in Boston. And I had kids on my team who never even met a Jew. So, you know, it was it was interesting and, and a, a, an awesome experience up there. And while I was up there, uh, I got a master's in special education and went on to run some therapeutic support programs up there. In the meantime, while up there, um, my brother was about 21 at the time. He had some real, real difficulties uh, in the community, and that's what led to an eventual uh, psychiatric hospitalization and subsequent diagnosis of bipolar disorder and diabetes simultaneously. So, you know, it was real confusing because he didn't understand it. So he's having these sort of, you know, real visceral emotional responses to things. You know, police had been involved and, you know, work issues um, ensued, social challenges. And it turned out that both the diabetes and the bipolar disorder were, were manifesting simultaneously. So it was really tough for me to be in Boston with my family in Philly and, and, and go through that. And, and, you know, we did. Shortly thereafter, I, I met Allie, and we can, we can talk about that separately. The real challenges for me kind of from, you know, really how I, I perceive them. And then when Allie and I met, we talked about all these challenges we had growing up. But like, you know, neither one of us at that point felt like we really had challenges. You know, she grew, had alopecia. I grew up with a brother with disabilities. You know, it wasn't it was light. Yeah, it, it was, was it, it, yeah. It, you know, we both like to do good things in the world. I mean, that was sort of the common bond. But when Allie got sick, that was obviously, you know, really, really earth shattering. Um, I recall on it was it was around. We're not like practicing Jews, so I don't really even know what holiday it was. It was like 
Rosh Hashanah yeah. or some, yeah. and I and I remember having to call Ali's mom and being like, "Die, I need you to get up here right now because mm-hmm. this isn't good." And I had to rush Ali to the hospital to the, to her doctor's office in the city in the back of the car. She was like bleeding, you know, hemorrhaging, um, and had to have blood transfusions. And they were like, "If you didn't get here now, like you would have been in an emergency, real emergency situation." Mm-hmm. Um, and that started this three and a half year challenge we had with Ali on prednisone daily. And that that's like signing a deal with the devil, that, that medication. And, you know, it got her feeling better, but also caused some real, real psychiatric challenges that we had to battle through. And it was right after we got married and about three years into, um, her being sick, I got a call from my parents one day right after we booked, well, it was, it was not after we booked it, but we were preparing to leave to go out West on a trip to oh, see yeah. fish and tell your eye and do a whole, you know, you know, two, three week tour of the West coast in that area, national parks. And I get a call from my parents that my mom um, had something going on with her brain. You know, they were doing a lot more tests, but it, you know, there were some concerning signs and, uh, turned out that she had uh, a, a glioblastoma multiforma that was rapidly developing. And July 28th, I believe it was, of 2010, we got the call. And um, by late August, she had already had her first surgery and was in rehab. And, and from that point on, nothing ever really progressed positively. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one complication after another. She became paralyzed from the waist down essentially. And, and the tumor was not able to be removed fully. And, and, you know, it, it, it causes all kinds of, you don't know how a brain tumor is going to affect somebody because you don't know what parts of the brain it's going to sort of infiltrate in. So for her, it was mobility, it was speech, it was memory, it was emotional dysregulation. I mean, it, she, she pretty much got every sort of, you know, impact from it that you can I think you can really have. And by uh, January of 2011, she had passed away. So that was right, right in the throes of Allie's three years of, of being sick. And my mom was still sick. We canceled our trip. I actually wound up taking about five months off of work uh, because Allie was too sick to travel back and forth to Philadelphia. Uh, where my parents were out outside of Philadelphia. And, you know, my dad, in hindsight, now I understand why I needed to be as involved as I was, because he was not capable of actually managing this situation alone, especially the there was the estate planning that had to happen, the doctor's appointments, the stuff that was related to my mom's employment. She was a guidance counselor for the city of Philadelphia and my brother. And so I took off work. I was back and forth. Meanwhile, my brother never had the proper services to fully access what was available to him because my parents sort of didn't think about it in a bigger picture manner and, you know, just didn't really identify everything that they needed to. So I was literally sitting at the door of state representatives and state assembly people advocating to expedite the approval of services for my brother so that I could move him out of my parents' house for the first time at age 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that way my mom could at least maybe see him 
and see who's caring for him and, you know, have some sense of comfort in that. So that was a full-time job in and of itself um, at that point on top of trying to support Ali and taking care of Ali and then dealing with all the doctors and the finances and things like that. Um, so that was to me like where my challenges in life really like were amplified and everything sort of came together in a, in a, you know, I guess a, a detrimental way. Um, I had very vivid memories of my, you know, I took my mom to get her first radiation mask at Perlman center in Philly. And, um, it went horribly wrong and she couldn't tolerate it. She's on a fentanyl lollipop and a mess and, and throwing up. And, you know, I'm at the hospital with her and I'm like, all right, I gotta get my dad here. So I'm calling my dad, dad, I need you to get down here. What, what dad, I need you to get down here. I, I, I'll call you back. I'm on the treadmill. And I'm like, no dad. And, and I'll call you back. And I call Allie. I'm like, I don't know what to do. My dad won't get down here. So she had to call my dad and be like, Denny, get off the treadmill and get down there now. Well, my dad's routine was to be on the treadmill and he couldn't break that routine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that at the time right. and what was happening. Right. And so there were a lot of moments like that in that time period and I didn't understand it and nor could I process it. You know, my head was deep in the sand dealing with all, all of the details. And so we got through that and, and Allie, you know, wound up getting her colon removed about two weeks before my mom passed away had to sort of be wheeled into the funeral, I believe, which was standing room only. My mom was an, uh, you know, an icon of the Special Olympics world in the area. I think there were like 600, 700 people at the funeral. Um, and she had then been posthumously um, inducted into the Pennsylvania Special Olympics Hall of Fame as a coach, which my dad, brother, and I accepted in, in her honor. And, um, the challenges then just continued. So after my mom's funeral, we, we kind of like had a few months of like recovery and, and breathing. And so in April of that year, 2011, Allie had her colon resectioned. So they took the external colostomy bag off and resectioned it, which is like Frankenstein medicine to me. A lot of complications in the hospital. She was in the hospital for almost two weeks from that real, real, scary situations and shortly after she got out of the hospital my dad's sister lost her husband unexpectedly he died of a heart attack in the middle of, an, of the night her my my um, cousin tried to do cpr in the middle of the night it was a real traumatic situation he was a tv personality so the whole situation was a bit of a media circus to an extent and um you know that that also obviously created a, a lot of trauma for everybody um, and then a few months after that, their mom died, my grandmother. So it was a really, really dark, challenging time when we were going through all of that. And um, once that happened, that's when life started. After my grandmother died, things started to then, you know, plateau a little bit or, 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 or the negativity started to alleviate. and We got back to life and... You know, it's been over the last 10 years, I've had this reckoning regarding my dad and maybe looking back, my dad suffered from a lot of depression, you know, a lot of challenges related to the Asperger's not being addressed as a child. I think he, you know, he's communicated some real challenges with self-esteem to me, you know, as an adult and, um, you know, just self-conscious over possible learning disabilities and all kinds of things, guilt over my brother's um, challenges. And so I've, I kind of had to like take this sort of like pseudo 
patriarchal role in my family that, you know, is not ideal, but is what it is, you know? And, and so I don't know. I, I, I feel just, I, I leave all that kind of like Allie, like I live this great life, man. We live in a beautiful community, you know, in a, in a beautiful part of the country with beautiful kids, awesome lives, you know, outside of all of these challenges. And so, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's been quite a, quite a journey. And currently what I'm doing now is I'm a principal of a high school uh, in Yonkers, New York, and our school is a public school, but it serves all kids with special needs. Um, no surprise there, right? <laughs> our kids uh, all have learning disabilities and an emotional disability. Um, we're 100% free and reduced lunch. Our kids come from real socioeconomically challenged communities, um, majority minority student staff population, real underprivileged, underserved, underrepresented, uh, system, systemic failures throughout their life experiences. And um, I have the privilege of being the leader of this uh, school that has a, a singular mission of helping these kids realize that they can change the narrative of their future and that they do not need to be a product of their environment and their previous experiences. They can control and determine what their, their future is going to be. And, um, you know, that, that's a pretty powerful, not from a, a, a power context, but a, a emotionally powerful uh, position to be in. First, thank you both for sharing all of that. <laughs> I don't mean to, to quip about it, but I'm, I'm almost exhausted just hearing the, the trajectory, <laughs> right? Um, I, I can only imagine, truly can only imagine what it was like to live that. A lot of different directions. I'd love to sort of go, threads to pull on, that sort of thing. Um, I thought we would start here. It's it's interesting. I've been thinking about it throughout you both sharing your individual stories. Paul Wong is a, a psychologist um, out in Taiwan. And we've been going back and forth a little bit via email. And the reason for that is there's, I think, has been and continues to be an increasing amount of research and theory that suggests one of the ways in which we really need to think about getting to flourishing individually and specifically is through a developed ability to kind of overcome suffering and, and endure it. And that's, that's all I could think about as, as you were walking through some of your experiences. And then when you get to the end and you talk about the framing you're putting around your life now, right? Sort of the the relative perspective that's been generated as a result of your many individual and collective experiences, it certainly would seem to lend some credence to his sort of argument around that, what he calls existential positive psychology. I don't know if you care to comment on that at all. Do you, you know, would you kind of agree with his his general hypothesis? Do you think, you know, the, the language a lot of people would recognize is like post-traumatic growth? hundred percent. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I've actually recently, I think it was maybe last week, somebody brought up Paul Wong. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Um, that's, yeah, that's wild. So we, we, yeah, we, we do a lot of work in our school um, with social emotional learning. I mean, we're a therapeutic school. So we talk a lot about the research regarding uh, growth mindset and Carol Dweck, Renee Brown and, and her research on, on trauma and shame and 
you, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think the Paul Wong perspective is almost sort of like the, 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 the Buddhist perspective. It is. It's very influenced by, yeah, by Buddhist philosophy. Yeah, yeah. right. It, it's sort of the, the growth of suffering. That's a very Eastern type of approach to this notion that you, you grow through perseverance or the Western perspective of it is sort of based on positivity, right? And the more, the more you're able to express and understand gratitude, um, selflessness, positivity, the, the, you literally can regenerate, you know, some, some, you know, neurons and, and there's, there's actual physical growth that then can help you to persevere and create new directions and opportunities and pathways to, to grow and develop. And so a lot of the work we do in our school, I mean, every Tuesday we have gratitude day at one fifty, where we talk to our kids and our staff about how you express gratitude, why, for what reasons, to who, to whom, you know, we do mindful Mondays and, and freedom Fridays. And, you know, it's all about this concept of growing through trauma and processing that. And so it's interesting that, and that was the context that this, that Wong came up, you know, it, it kind of comparing and contrasting the approaches. Yeah. Well, they, and that's really, you know, the first two things I was kind of putting down in my notes here is you both were talking that both are seem to be really present in your stories and your histories and that, you know, I don't, don't mean to be overly uh, romantic about it, but in some ways it seems like you, your early life experiences really prepared you to be with one another when you eventually met, right? Like you were, you were both, both prepared to endure some real challenges with and for one another in part because of practice you had received consciously or, or sort of subconsciously, it sounds like in some cases. And I think that, you know, there's, there's a real nice beauty to that, um, which it, it looks like just judging by your faces, you, you both feel and, and agree with as well. But of course, like that, <laughs> that's not necessarily the same thing as, as wishing for those experiences to occur. What you're talking about is really growing, enduring, silver lining, getting some perspective, right? But ultimately still layering in the deliberate cultivation of pleasant emotion, which can serve as an antidote to some of those things. You mentioned humor, love, social support, belonging, those sorts of things, right? It, it just occurs to me that it doesn't seem like an either or proposition. There's really kind of a both and. Yeah, there's a place for the lessons that can be learned and the way life can be enhanced through some suffering. Even how I started out talking about COVID, you know, like we hadn't like, that's exactly yep. what I was kind of finishing up with because that's how I get through things, you know, is to kind of then like, what can I take from this? How can I frame it in a positive way? You know, I, we have two kids. How can we help frame it for them? And it's not to um, ignore, um, you know, I still think you need to process and feel the feelings of negativity or, you know, to quote unquote mourn, you know, my colon or my hair or, you know, any, anything that you're going through, you know, whether it be, you know, physical parents getting a divorce, um, you know, having trouble in school, any kind of challenge, just jumping over to another thought I just had when you were talking right before that was one thing I always say to people, or I should just say when I was really sick, where like, 
you know, I was anemic. I, my face was very pale. I was either very skinny or my face was blown up a bit from prednisone. Physically, it, it didn't look like me. Like I didn't even really recognize myself. You know, it, it was a slow process, but I still, I remember my mom saying to me, you know, make sure like, number one, you're comfortable every day. So like get some new comfy clothes, make sure you have a really comfy sweatshirt, comfy sweatpants, whatever it is. But also like, just don't make it be black or gray. Like pick up a color that when you look down or when you look in the mirror, it kind of gives you a little like, mm, okay, I see like happiness. And Smart mom. <laughs> yeah. And I did that every day. And, you know, same thing with I, I always wear eye makeup because I don't have eyelashes and eyebrows. And to me, that's kind of how I, you know, like the way I look better. That way I feel more quote unquote normal. So even when I was like on death's door, you know, not really, but even when I was very sick, I made sure I put on my eyeliner, I put on a little blush just to give my face a little, and it wasn't for anybody else, but for me. You know, when I looked in the mirror, if I saw a drawn white, you know, blown up face, that was not gonna be good for my mentality that day. But if I looked in the mirror and, you know, saw a little bit of color, <laughs> I felt like it helped me. So that was almost like my internal cheerleader, you know, helping me get through whatever struggle it was. So I, have a friend who was just diagnosed with cancer and I, you know, I slipped in at the right time. Make sure you have like a nice comfy sweatsuit and like, you know, don't if you like, you know, make put on a little blush, <laughs> you know, just because to me that really made a difference. And it's such a small, almost silly thing, but it helps, you know, so finding ways that you can help yourself to me is a huge thing. All of that really speaks to that both and, and when we talk about like the language we use is, is cognitive framing. So you know, we, we put our brains in an fMRI machine, like adrenaline and fear and anxiety and excitement, they're going to show up with really similar signatures, right? What's going to change sort of how they impact us? Well, oftentimes it's how we think about things. And that's what I just hear so much of in your stories is, you know, okay, yeah, I've got to think about this in a way because this, these things are truly dangerous. They're truly difficult. I need to bring them in. I need to understand them. I need to process them. I need to kind of make sense of how to move forward with them. Right. And at the same time, I'm not losing sight of some things that can nurture me and that I can be grateful for. In fact, in many cases, it sounds like that process of enduring significant unpleasantness and, and flat out danger enhances the level of clarity you have around some of those things that you're grateful for. Would, would you say that tends to be the case? Yeah, I give you a very simple uh, you know, analogy or, or example, I should say. It, one of the occasions Allie was hospitalized. I, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> one of the occasions Allie was hospitalized um, was, was during the football playoffs. And I, you know, I'm like most Philadelphians, a, a big Eagles fan. And well, um, I was, I was going to say the party we had in the hospital. Oh, right. I forgot about that. Yeah, well, I want to hear both then. Let's hear both. Yeah, yeah, Mike yeah, first and then Allie can tell the party. Well, well I'll, I'll tell you, we, you know, on our first wedding anniversary, we, we were very fortunate that we had some savings when Allie got sick because of her ridiculous voiceover career, really. At that time. At that time. <laughs> and, um, you know, we stayed in a, in a really nice part of, of Mount Sinai Hospital where um, there was a, a, a chef from the Four Seasons who would, would prepare dinner. If you, if you wanted. So we had like a whole, whole it was like, you're Just at a hotel, you know, yeah. we, we had like, I don't, I don't even know what you could eat. I don't even I remember. remember, but we pretended like everything was fine and we had yeah. like room service delivered. Right. Yeah. We, we did have a party. Allie can, 
can comment on that if you pizza remember. party wine beer, beer yeah i mean they, we had like they were, 15 yeah, oh, friends we were, in my hospital room like well, we, the no there, there was like a big and there was like a, a like an entertainment space oh, on yeah. this floor at the hospital that you know you oh, can yeah, they utilize. Let us use that room right well I, I worked from there <laughs> oh, yeah. but, that's but, what but back say. yeah so the the eagles were playing I be, i'm pretty positive it was the arizona cardinals and um uh in a playoff game and um Ali's doctor, her GI, happened to be there, and we were pretty friendly with him. You know, I would text him, and we were on a first-name basis, you know. And so he and I had some chicken wings and drank some beers in the hospital room watching the Eagles playoff game. Allie just laying there sick. I don't know what she was doing at the time, but I, I was watching the game. Um, but since then, my sort of, like, fan, fanaticism for the Eagles mm. – um, and, and my real, like, typically Philadelphia live and die and, and mood swings by how the Eagles are performing, di- com- almost completely dissipated. Like, I love the Eagles. I watch football. I watch hockey. I love sports. But, like, I don't have that sort of, like, you know, if, they're, if they lose today, I'm going to be in a bad mood all day. You know, I, that all sort of went away from that experience because it put it in perspective yeah it just gave it this perspective of you're watching you know, the game and i'm in a hospital right room, right. right i'm, I'm drinking a beer in a hospital room with my wife who almost died and a gi and, and a doctor this game isn't that important yeah, yeah <laughs> sure and hearing about that and about the the, the pizza party <laughs> the other note I had written down is it sounds like you correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you would say that one of the takeaways from sort of overcoming struggles of various degrees of seriousness and various levels of trauma and intensity levels is um, who's around you. Social support. Yes. You know, each other. Absolutely. But I'm but I'm hearing about friends and doctors and, and figures. Would, would you both, you know, maybe wax poetic a little bit about the impact these these other people in your life have had um, on your ability to, to fight through these really incredible experiences? Without a doubt, um, you know, I can start with, well, I mean, I completely agree with what you're saying. Friends, family, teachers, friends through Facebook now more as we're older, you know, even that current support system through, uh, through COVID, you know, that's kind of been a little bit more of my community. Thank you, Mike. But, you know, when I lost my hair, the support that I had for my family, I already mentioned my parents, was, you know, unwavering and, and really pushed me to kind of see the positive in it and, and motivate, you know, get through. But I was 16. My youngest sister was, uh, Jill was nine. And at one point when I was just kind of in the beginning of losing my hair, I had to go to the doctor and lie on a table. And I don't know if I had like six or eight bald patches, but they had to inject each patch with like... 15, you know, injections. And for some reason, one day, I don't, I don't know if my parents couldn't go with me. I mean, I was a driver at this point, so I could go by myself, but my sister, Jill, who was nine said, can I go with Allie? I want to, I want to be with her. And so I only had to do that a couple of times. It wasn't my first time, but you know, I lie down on the table and Jill asked if she could lie next to me. And the two of us lied there while I got, you know, these injections and like, just to, that was, I mean, I don't even need to say anything else. The support was just so, so unbelievable. Um, my sisters have always been like that. You know, we had great friends when Mike's mom was going through her struggles and mine. And uh, I just can't say enough about, about support. I, I do say to, uh, 
I remember that when I was sick with colitis, you know, there was a point where like every day was, I could have complained a hundred thousand times. So I would keep it to myself or Mike got a lot of that. And then I would notice that, you know, my friend Cindy was hearing it every day. And then I'd feel like, oh, I can't call my mom again because she's been hearing it so much. And I started to feel like if I keep, you know, venting to the same people, to me when I was sick, and I'm sure this wasn't actually the case, but I just felt like they're just not going to want to pick up the phone anymore. So I kind of, in a weird way, found some almost, I don't want to say second level, you know, relationships, but like I wound up venting to people that I, I almost wouldn't have expected. And people always seem to be there for me because, you know, they wanted to support and listen. And it, to me, it felt good to not have to quote unquote bother you know, the same old, same old people, but I found some new people. And I remember when Mike's mom was sick and he was going to Philly, you had like beers with people that you hadn't talked to in a long yeah. time. And, you know, people just kind of came out of the woodwork and helped. And I remember that with funerals and with surgeries. It's like, you don't really know who the expected people, you know, hopefully are there, but sometimes surprises come out of the woodwork and that's really special too. And, and even as not the victim, but um, the supporter. Sometimes I think about that when I hear of other friends or family going through a struggle and I pop in and say, I know we're not that close, but if you ever want to go, you know, for a walk or whatever it is, you know, I think it's nice to be there for other people, um, even maybe not your closest. Good for them and good, good for them and good for us. Yes, exactly. I, I think True. that one of the things that you, you know, we, we, we take for granted with this you know, maybe you more than me, I don't know. You know, for me anyway, probably more than Ali, like music is my religion, right? Mm -hmm. Positivity is my spirituality. Concerts are my church. Mm -hmm. And so when Ali was sick, right, that, that New Year's of 2010 into 11, um, we went to see fish at Madison Square Garden. That was a great place to be for New Year's because we were with these people that we had been seeing a lot of you know, seen a lot of music with um, in this really wonderfully positive environment. That's that kind of is that support system that Ali was referring to was really developed through that that world we live in. We we met in New Orleans at Jazz Fest through mutual friends. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, at, at the House of Blues at at two in the morning <laughs> um, yes. for a, a concert for from a guy named Carl Denson awesome funk band from from california and he'd been always playing the second thursday late night show at the house of blues the second weekend of jazz fest and it's sort of people develop their rituals right and that's a show that i had been to several years in a row me too <laughs> ali also when we had met through through mutual friends and and we really kind of i think we both would agree we sort of like fell in love without even talking mm -hmm. while in the show mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and spent the rest of the weekend together mm -hmm. and you know we we were with all these mutual friends and we've made lots and lots of, of friends since then and that's that's kind of like what I do to reset myself mm -hmm. the pandemic has been the most difficult part of the pandemic for me is that I can't see live music mm -hmm. and it, it actually I feel it in my soul. It feels, I can feel a depletion from it. It's almost like if you couldn't exercise or something, it's like right. you're missing 
and therapeutic. You, well, yeah, yeah, you mentioned absolutely. you mentioned Brene Brown earlier. I think she would call some of what you're describing a quote unquote collective moment, right? There's collective moments of joy, collective moments of sorrow, and these t- tend to be experiences in which we're sort of sharing an emotion with the people around us. So you mentioned concerts, like the. Everybody kind of knows you go to a concert, there's at least a song at some point where the artist stops singing and allows the crowd to take over and you get that little jump in your belly and those sorts of things, right? Those are the sorts of experiences. And and I think there's, you know, pretty convincing evidence that suggest that, uh, suggest that those sorts of experiences really bind you and or can bind you in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in the music that we listen to and the, and the, and the scene that we're in, that's the way it is from the start of the show to the end of the show Mm -hmm. before and after the show. Mm -hmm. It's a collective moment from start to finish, not just in those moments when the artist stops singing, but it's truly, you know, from the time you, you get in your cars with friends to go get to the parking lot, walking into the show, every moment of it is this sort of real true collective moment of like, joy and 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 positivity and excitement and um you know that i we we thrive in that i mean i literally believe you know i'll interject you know when when ali was sick i started seeing a therapist um to help obviously get me through some of that and when my mom got diagnosed, I, I went to the therapist and his name was Ari and I told him and, you know, he's like, holy cow, like, I can't believe you have to deal with this now. This is, this is unbelievable. And he said to me, Ari, well, like, you know, what are your religious views? And I'm like, well, I was raised Jewish, but I'm, I'm really, I, I don't necessarily believe in organized religion. And he said, well, what, what do you believe in? And, and I thought for a couple of seconds and I said, I, I believe in positivity. I believe that my, you know, we're obligated to leave a positive footprint behind and, and um, produce as much positive energy as we can in the world. And he said, all right, well, well, let me, this is, this is my advice to you. When you go to bed every night and put your head down on the pillow, if you have a real good night's sleep, no matter what's going on around you in your life, if you have a good night's sleep, you were making decisions that were in line with your core values and beliefs, despite the circumstances. If you have a restless night of sleep, you might want to reflect on the previous day and think about where you may have operated outside of your core values and beliefs and either just own that and understand it, correct those issues, you know, make adjustments from, you know, what, what you reflected on and, and learned. And if you do that, um, you, you will, you will be all right. And I think that since that day, I've, I've lived every day like that. I've shared that advice that Ari gave me. I would venture to say hundreds? maybe thousands of times. <laughs> I mean, I, I do, I don't anymore, but I had been doing a, a bit of public speaking, you know, um, at conferences and other events as it relates to special education, et cetera, and our uh, other adventures that, that Allie and I had. Um, and um, I think that, that that reflection and uh, recognition of the alignment of our core values and beliefs um, as a as a human, are you know really critical to getting through these types of situations. You know that that to me that that notion that my my core value is to leave a positive footprint in the world behind me uh, as I as I move forward is really I feel why you, 
we've been able, or I've been able to anyway, talking more individually, why, I, while, why I've been able to persevere. That's a tool in your toolbox. So I want to take this in a, in a related, although slightly different direction. You're talking about, you know, concerts and the parties and social support. And, you know, that's, that's a collective thing. And at the same time, it's very good for your individual self, right? And it, it occurs to me that, that that sort of relationship where, you know, the, the collective experiences can positively impact individual well-being. Well, that can happen in the other direction as well, where being maybe a little overly focused or impacted by, you know, other people's experiences around you can have a detrimental effect, right? And certainly there must have been moments where for you both, it was probably really challenging, I would guess, to um, make sure you also focus on self-care. Right. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, were you both very intentional at different periods uh, about making, you know, Al, you mentioned yoga right now, but, you know, did, did you have steps, strategies that you employed to try to help, you know, maintain some of your, your sanity and equal, equilibrium and some of these very, very arduous experiences? So one thing that I I don't know if I needed to do it or wanted to do it, but when I was sick, I took a bath every single day. Um, I remember lighting candles. I remember spending a lot of time in the bath. And since then, you know, I, I take baths more when I'm, you know, with the kids or I was never really like a big bather. I mean, only as a kid, but. She stunk when we met. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was never a big baby. I didn't really like to keep myself clean. Weren't you, yeah, um, you were you were in New Orleans at a jazz concert. Yeah, it's just supposed exactly. to stink. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, this is yeah. Th I mean, this is as clean as I've ever been in my life. I mean, I if Allie met me a couple years earlier than we met, she she wouldn't have never made eye contact. With me. <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, I I think that I couldn't really do much at that point, and that was you know ten feet from my bed and it was cozy and it was safe and it was something that somehow brought me some peace and calm and comfort physically mentally and you know i, I couldn't do yoga at that point like i was just kind of too sick but i did find that and i don't think it was um i don't know if it was on purpose or not but there was a point where i realized wow i need this you know i, I like this and so it's funny, I just, when I started the yoga 10 days ago, you know, my body was hurting for the first time in a while in a good way. And I said to Mike, I think I'm going to take a bath, which I have taken baths with the kids, but by myself, it had been years. And so I just sat in the bath and I was thinking about, wow, the last time I really did this was when I was kind of dealing with so much negative stuff. And, uh, and it brought me you know, positive happiness and calm again. And I've done it, I think two or three times since. So that was something that I did when I was really unable to do much else. Love it. I mean, that's probably the hard part, right? Is you're, you're so focused on taking care of others. It's, I think it's really easy to lose track of taking, you know, it's put, put your oxygen mask on, mask on before you place yeah. it on somebody By the else, way, right? Absolutely. Also, I mean, I don't know how I forgot this, but I was seeing a therapist when I was sick, I think at one point twice a week, just to sit on her couch and just kind of, you know, 
vent out, vomit out everything that had happened in the previous three days. And as I said, you know, I had Mike, I had my family, I had friends, I had that second layer of friends to go to. But there was just a point where it almost felt better to just tell somebody who, who wouldn't personally be affected by what I was going through. And I could not have gotten through that time without, without that, you know, without that outlet. I felt like it was, I kept calling it a, a pedicure for the brain hmm. because I just felt like, you know, my brain needed it. And then I was relieved and then I went three days and then I saw her again. And that, that was a huge thing for me then yeah. too. Those are great. Awesome examples. So we will um, kind of wrap it up here with this last question. It's really, and I understand it's probably complicated, but kind of a how to question, right? You've talked about mindsets social support, perspective and gratitude, processing, right? Like very, I think in many ways can be tangible things with strategies attached to them that you've sort of had to in many ways learn on the fly, right? Now that you've come through a lot of these experiences, what might be a piece of sort of like how-to advice for any of our listeners who are currently or recently or will eventually endure significant challenges just as you both have? Well, I, I, you know, to keep it as generalized as possible, because we all have different um, resources available to us, right? Uh, one thing I would say is if you have um, people around you, if you have a support system, allow them to support you. Rely on them for support. It's easy to kind of shut the door on people for various reasons, but, but I would say rely on those people that are around you and let them be there for you. I would also say that really reflect on what your values and, and beliefs are. You know, what do you really believe is your purpose in the world and what you think is key and critical to your successful ability to operate in, in your environment. And it could be as simple, as complex as you want, but as long as you're in tune with that and can sort of reflect how how you are maintaining those core values and beliefs through a challenge. I, I think you can, you can really get through kind of anything. Um, and then finally, I would say to, you know, as we were just discussing, identify things that do help you to feel good, whether it's exercise or music or reading. Uh, I'm a big fan of Ted talks, you know, just, just find something that makes you feel good. Um, and if you do those three things, I think you can, you know, really find your way through whatever kinds of challenges you're faced with. It's really excellent. I just want to double click on one of those things. You know, there's plenty of, of good research out there. Adam Grant, Dr. Stephen Post, you know, kind of in the organizational world and the physical health world and the well-being world that suggests that giving generally adding value to other people's lives is tremendously beneficial oftentimes for the giver and the receiver, but something you just pointed out there, which I, I think I can relate to a little bit, just sort of kind of growing up in the Midwest. I'm from West Michigan. There's sort of a, you don't necessarily want to receive help. A lot of the time there's sort of this like, you know, independence and rugged individualism sometimes like very community focused, but still on an individual level, you can have that. Well, how, how do you, promote having more givers in the world like you have to have some receivers you have to be willing to as you said ask right and receive in some cases and that's that's okay because it also provides somebody else with an opportunity to do good things that make them feel good too the best example that i can um 
that hits the nail on the head for something that I feel like has changed my life and that I live by on a daily basis. And that is when I was in my mid twenties after I met Mike, I had a moment, you know, a time period where I was struggling with strangers on the street approaching me in New York city because I was bald and they, you know, either wanted to say, do you have cancer or, you know, did you shave your head? Or I just felt like people were- Are you, are you a lesbian? Yeah. And it was a different time then. Yeah. But I, I was finding that very annoying. Like, oh, somebody- We were thinking we were two men. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Allie, Allie lived in the West Village in New York when we met, which is, you know, there's a, there's a pretty, pretty strong LBGTQ demographic there and Allie and I would walk around you know like this or whatever and you know we would get a a lot of comments of people looking at us from behind you know in that time period and it was a first for me so it was pretty interesting uh, to experience that but yeah but 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 I was you know that experience of having of being annoyed by being bothered you know by being interrupted in my life and somebody coming over was tough for me what what I wasn't thinking about until Mike kind of brought, you know, made me realize it. But most of the time when somebody was approaching me, it was because they assumed that I had cancer and they themselves either had been through cancer or had a relative or a close friend who had just struggled or was struggling currently with cancer. And I think that the approach was 100% not about me. You know, when they approached me, it wasn't about me at all. It was 100% about them and them wanting to connect. and. I was, you know, saying something to Mike at one point about how it was just so hard. And I just remember him looking me in the eyes and saying, Allie, you need to turn that around because this, if you choose not to wear a wig, this is going to happen to you your whole life. And if you're annoyed every time somebody approaches you, that's going to be a a hard way to live life. But if instead you think of it as, oh, wow, this is a moment where somebody needs to connect or vent or, you know, relay a story or feel support. If you just think of it as this is a moment where you're here to give and they need to give what, you know, they need to do what they need to do. Um, you know, that we're will both be, a giver and receiver. Right. We're, bo- right. we're both givers and receivers. And, and I just, I was like, Oh my goodness. Like that just changed my life. I mean, I really remember thinking, Oh my gosh, that changed my life because it, it, it was just such a flip. I have never, ever been annoyed, truly, ever again since that moment, because I always feel like it's just about the other person. And I feel like, you know, it's, it's good for them to have that moment. And it's good for me to be the listener. And, and so it's just been, a, you know, that's huge. That's a huge change in my life. She doesn't know it. I just used my telepathic. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, I didn't do anything. <laughs> what, whatever the cause, I was just going to say, there's that framing again, right? Just to shift in how you're looking at things. The other thing I was going to say just as, you know, any how-to comments are, I think it's, I've learned a lot about being vulnerable, um, that it's okay to be real. You know, when you're in middle school or high school, you're struggling with different things in life or you're facing different things in life. And sometimes you want to be like everybody else or you want to have X and you have Y, whatever it is, but to be yourself and to you know, find you. people to be, to be you, to find people that you can really trust with, you know, just being vulnerable is a huge, you know, I think it's a huge benefit on your well being because to do anything but that, which I think is the natural way for a lot of people, you know, a lot of people were raised to kind of 
oh, everything's great. But if you can really kind of let that go, I think it's a lot easier to move through life and to um, face struggle. Yeah, well said. Um, Allie, Mike, this was a really wonderful conversation. I'm so glad we were able to, to make this happen. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was, it was um, fascinating, difficult, obviously, but, but highly enlightening, um, illustrative as well. Uh, where, where can people find you? Where can people interact with you? I know you do some nonprofit work. Can, can people, you know, find a website and support that? Can they support, you know, the school, Mike? Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, we, we had started a, a venture called BU Love Life to try to share all of this information. And at the time we were developing that, um, I was in another master's degree program while, while working and running a, a, a pretty intensive program full time. And we had one child and another one on the way. And um, the ability for us to also launch this BU Love Life initiative was really compromised. So that has been sort of put on hold, maybe indefinitely, and maybe not. I don't, I don't know. But I will say, um, supporting the work I'm doing in my school is, is obviously, uh, you, you know, other than my family, the most important um, aspect of my life. Um, our school's website is www.gncufsd.org. So that's Greenberg, North Castle, Union Free School District.org. Um, and there is a link to a donation page on there. We have a nonprofit called Stand with GNC, um, and we provide teacher grants. Uh, we've delivered uh, over 400 uh, computers to our students in the district in the last 11 months. We've uh, provided roughly 10,000 meals for families. Our food services has created our own sort of like uh, uh, blue apron boxes where we say, okay, you have five members of your household. Here's all the ingredients for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and all the recipes for seven days. And delivering those kinds of boxes to families, hats, gloves, coats. Um, we're giving away students who are behaving and, and, and you know, succeeding and thriving. Flat screen TVs and AirPods and headphones and, you know, all kinds of things, um, which has just changed the entire dynamic of our building because our kids didn't know that they were worthy and, and deserving of, of being recognized or provided for or, or you know, rewarded for, for, for doing. So if, uh, if people want to support our initiatives in the school district, again, it's uh, www.gncufsd.org for Greenberg North Castle Union Free School District. That's perfect. And we'll, we'll make sure that link is in our show notes as well. So, and, and also anybody can email me anytime at alivoron at mac.com. It's A-L-I-V-O-R-O-N at mac.com, like Macintosh. Perfect. Yep. Um, yep. I, I love, you know, I love when people reach out to me. I always respond. So anytime anybody wanted to connect, I would love to do that for whatever reason. Beautiful. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you both for that. So it was wonderful to have you both on and, and thank you so much and look forward to talking to you again, hopefully in the future. That would be great. Thanks so much, Nick. It was great to talk to you as well. Great. Thank you. Our show is produced by the Shipley School, an independent pre-K through grade 12 day school, rethinking education and daring to hope that we can in fact build a better future. Come on and join us.